Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks about science a lot. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today we're going to be talking about hope. It's the start of a new year. It's 2019. And we're all just like looking forward with possibly a little bit of apprehension, but also hope that we're going to get through this and that the world is going to possibly be a better place in the future. And, you know, how does science fiction, how does science fiction and fantasy give us hope for the future? How does it enable us to have hope in dark times? And what is hope punk, the new uh, subgenre that we've been hearing a lot about? Uh, we're going to be talking about that. And we hope that you're subscribing to our Patreon. As you said in the intro, people have been talking a lot about hope punk on the internet of late. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because of a couple of articles that have come out about it. There was one that I read in Vox by Asia Romano. Um, there's been some others. And so there's a lot of new terms being thrown around to describe this new movement of hope punk. So Charlie, give us the whole down low on like where the term came from, all the different pieces of it, uh, and where we are now. Yeah, so the term hope punk was coined by a writer named Alexander Rowland. I first heard of it back in like May-ish when there was a panel about it at the Nebula Awards. And also there was a panel at a small convention called Fourth Street Fantasy. And it's basically trying to say that we need science fiction that gives us hope or science fiction and fantasy that give us hope that show us that we can fight against oppression and that the world doesn't have to be dark and miserable and grim forever. And it's sort of setting itself up in opposition to grim dark, which is this movement of primarily fantasy, but also some sci-fi where everything is dark and terrible and the world is awful. And it's sort of typified by Game of Thrones as seen in this clip where the show gets its title from. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. And that was Cersei explaining that, like, basically the world is a dark and terrible place and that you either have to crush your enemies or be crushed. And those are the two choices. And Game of Thrones kind of backs that up a lot of the time. There's not easy choices in Game of Thrones. Everything is brutal and bloody. People get maimed all the time. People get sexually assaulted on the regular basis. You know, weddings are often likely to turn into massacres like you know I don't think there's been a happy wedding on that show <laughs> no. um, and, and battles are sort of gruesome and, and nasty and huge and sprawling and so hope punk is sort of in opposition to that and you know at the fourth street's fantasy panel about this you know people kind of defined it in terms of like fighting like one of the things that people said on that panel is hope punk means that you go back to Amalus with pitchforks and torches, referring to the story by Ursula K. Le Guin, the ones who walk away from Amalus, where in her story, it's a choice between accepting the injustice of like a perfect society that's built on one child being tortured versus walking away. And it's like there's a third choice, which Hope Punk prescribes, of going back to Amalus and burning it all down. And so it's Which not, doesn't sound totally hopeful, burning it all down. Well, pitchforks and torches doesn't necessarily mean burning it all down, but it means that you're not going to settle. You're not going to accept right. that we have to keep it this way. We can do better. Mm -hmm. We can. We don't have to have injustice. We don't have to either walk away from it or accept it. We can fight it. 
And so that's kind of the germ of hope punk is that it's actually, it's not, you know, shiny and happy necessarily, but it is saying that we can do better. And, uh, you know, and that more recently there was the article that everybody's been talking about in Vox.com, which kind of, you know, talks about it in the context of cuteness and niceness. But also Alexandra Rowland herself wrote an essay for a website called Festive Ninja, where she kind of specifically starts out by saying that it's not about being nice and that, in fact, niceness is antithetical to hope punk and that it's about endless struggle and accepting that we may never win the fight against oppression, that it's never we're never going to achieve like a total victory and that it's not utopian because utopias tend to be static and tend to be like an end state. And that, you know, really hope punk calls for endless struggle and endless fighting and just not giving up. It's kind of anti the idea of people being good or, or evil. It's everybody is flawed and we just have to do the best we can. I was thinking when you mentioned Game of Thrones that to me the opposite of that is kind of Lord of the Rings, right? Because they're struggling, there's a sense of hope. Is that kind of what people are looking for or is that something else? No, in fact, Alexander Rowland in her essay specifically says that she's anti the Lord of the Rings paradigm, which she defines as quote-unquote noble bright, where basically in Ah. Lord of the Rings, it's about some people being good and some people being evil. And if you can just put the good people in charge, like if Aragorn can be king, he will rule wisely and everything will be fine and we'll have a happy world. And she pushes back against that and says that actually that's not what hope punk is about. It's about the idea that there are no good people necessarily or nobody is intrinsically good and that we just have to do the best we can and that we're never going to just put the right person in charge and then everything's going to be fine. There's no like noble savior who's going to save us. Right. So that Um, actually kind of sheds a little light for me on the Hunger Games ending, which is very much, it sounds like it's very much in the hope punk model because it's about how just unseating the bad guy doesn't solve the problem. And in fact, we're kind of left wondering, you know, is Katniss really, she isn't the answer. We know she's not the answer. And so it kind of, it leaves us with that sense that, you know, this is actually a structural problem. It's not about killing the the evil witch. It's, you got to do more than that. Yeah, you have to actually uproot oppression at the roots, which is a difficult job, not just sort of like make cosmetic changes or put a new figurehead in charge or, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss kind of thing. We can all agree that punk as a suffix for subgenres is, you know, maybe played out. It's super played out. And I have to say, when I read Asia Romano's article in Vox, which actually is a, a great article, I think she does a great job kind of laying out the territory. And this is not her fault. She didn't come up with the term hope punk, but I was like, why do we have to call it hope punk? Um, and I was like, can't it be anything else? <laughs> I think people want to have it have the punk suffix because of what you were saying about how it's about struggle. And so it's supposed to be kind of badass. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, cutesy hope or happy hope. It's, you know, the grim it's, hope of yeah. struggle. It's, you know. But it's true that we've been kind of drowning in in kind of dark grimness and awfulness that kind of for a while, every superhero had to be dark and gritty and like, I am the night and like all that stuff. And, you know, then there was that thing a year or two ago where the Deadpool movie did so much better than the latest dark, gritty X-Men movie because it was like, we just want to see a superhero being fun and having being goofy and, you know, severed limbs that are entertaining and silly and whatever. It's funny because I don't think of Deadpool as being hope punk at all because it's such a cynical, cynical character and it's a cynical world. It's like there is no hope at all. There's there's the hope of a good quip, but there's no (laughs) hope for fixing anything, really. It was funny because 
the punk part of Hope Punk as like a kind of corrective to Grimdark, I still am struggling with that because part of what has been so tiresome of the about the influx of Grimdark stories, mm-hmm. whether it's on TV um, with things like Riverdale or if it's if the movies, where it's like the whole point of Grimdark is to take something that maybe was a little bit apple-cheeked and make it like, mm-hmm. you know, dark. And, and also, let's be honest, like part of it is about making it macho uh-huh. and, you know, oh, yeah. edgy. And I was like, you know, I wouldn't mind if we had a, a hopeful streak in science fiction that was kind of reinventing that apple-cheeked sweetness. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. And like I said, I, I do think there's a certain amount of gendering that's going on where we think of things that are, you know, brightly colored and sweet and cute as being kind of girly. Uh-huh. Um, so it's like, oh, well, who watches My Little Pony, you know? But My Little Pony is a great example of, like, hope punk that's, like, sparkly. And so I think maybe... For me, hopeful science fiction can be about that sort of punk aspect, that Hunger Gamesy thing, but also maybe trying to rethink just how we tell stories, the tone of the story mm-hmm. itself. Like, not that it has to be like freaking dancing elves or whatever. Like, I, I don't want something unrealistic and dumb, but I wouldn't mind, like, like I love the show She-Ra, mm-hmm. where, you know, there's a lot of sparkle, but there's darkness. It's a not a happy world, but they're still not afraid to have, like, floofy hair and and sparkle ponies. There's literally a sparkle pony, which is there's kind of like, delightful. There's like there's a flying <laughs> horse or whatever. I've been complaining obviously about the punk thing <laughs> <laughs> and complaining about how it has to be all struggle. And so now I have another complaint, but I'm going to phrase it in the form of a question. Okay. So my question is, is it wrong for us to be thinking of hopeful science fiction as a subgenre when it's really more like hope is a theme? in a whole bunch of subgenres. It's sort of similar to when people try to make climate fiction into a, a genre, when yes. in fact, thinking about climate disaster is something that you do in a variety of different genres and a variety mm-hmm. of different types of stories. And it's a motif, it's a theme, it's a topic. But I mean, to me, what makes something a subgenre is usually that there's a particular type of setting, there's a particular type of characters that you interact with. There's, you know, Sometimes certain there's narrative even, trappings. Yeah, certain tropes. Yeah. Yeah, like space opera. You have spaceships, you have aliens, you have ray guns, you have like somewhat fanciful technology, and it's like zippy adventures. It's almost constraining the idea of hopeful science fiction to call it a genre or to call it a movement or to call it anything like that, when really what we're saying is, we would like more science fiction and fantasy across every genre, across every milieu that gives us more of a sense of hope. And I think that really what we want is stories that leave us with a sense, like that we come away from the story when we return to the real world, such as it is, with the sense that we can do something, that we can be the hero of our own story, that we can stand up and do something about like the oppressive structures around us. And I think that that's something that ideally any genre could do. And I'm even going to say heretically, perhaps, that you could have a grimdark fantasy story that is also hopeful. Ooh, that's an interesting idea. You know, and that those two things aren't actually mutually exclusive. Yeah, because you... grimdark is a, is stylistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also not a genre. It's a style. You can make anything grimdark. Yeah, but grimdark fantasy is a genre, I think, specifically, I guess, because it's, yeah. it's kind of the epic fantasy setting, mm-hmm. but with, you know, everything being bloody and dark and mm-hmm. gruesome. It's sort of like, it's a version of epic fantasy, I guess, or high fantasy. That 
leads to my next question. So if it's true that hopeful writing, hopeful storytelling kind of defies genre, it doesn't have to be part of any particular genre, what, what do you think the differences or maybe the similarities are between hopeful science fiction versus hopeful fantasy? Obviously, when we talk about hope in science fiction, we're talking about mostly the future. We're talking about, you know, our future or some version of the future in which we would like to believe that things are going to get better or that we can continue to fight for things to get better. Mm -hmm. And it's usually about like imagining technological and social change that is pushing the world in a direction of progress. And it's this idea of progress, which is obviously a slippery one, because often in the past, what people have defined as progress was actually just new ways of screwing everybody over. But And there could be hopeful science fiction that wasn't to your taste, right? Like, it could be like, you know, a hopeful libertarian future, which doesn't oh, really yeah. work for me, but if you're a libertarian, that's great. Or like a hopeful socialist future, which the libertarians are like throwing in the trash with like, you know, great haste. I mean, I think Ayn Rand is probably hope punk too. Yeah, to, to no, but that's kind people, of what I'm you know. getting at. Yeah, and I mean, you could get really dark with that and be like, well, you could have right-wing race war hope punk, which is really creepy, right? And right. which we, we don't want to think of as hopeful, but for some people, that's a dark hope that they have. And so- Now I'm just um, stuck on the idea that Ayn Rand invented hope punk, actually. <laughs> that would be kind of, <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, but whereas in fantasy, I think that, you know, obviously it's usually not our world, or even if it is our world, it's a our version of our world with magic. And usually it's not so much about the future. I mean, the, the cliche is to say that fantasy is more about the past because often it takes place in a mythologized version of the past. But it's more about the idea that we can struggle against the Dark Lord or whatever or, the, or you know, Sauron or whoever you want to bring up, that we can struggle against the dark side or the evil version of magic or that the oppressive monsters, we can fight them. And it's it's much more just about endless struggle, I guess, but with... So it's not so much about change, it's about the struggle itself. I mean, I guess that's a really good question. There is certainly a lot of great fantasy right now that is about change. I mean, if you consider the Broken Earth trilogy mm -hmm. by N.K. Jemisin to be fantasy, that's definitely about change. To be fair, like, those novels have a strong science fiction component. Yeah, they do. And so that's... I mean, it's interesting to think like, oh, that's about change. And she wound up using some of the trappings of science fiction to tell that story. That's interesting. Yeah. OK, so here's another question, which is, do you see a difference between hope and optimism? Because we talk about optimistic science fiction sometimes. Certainly, Neil Stevenson uh, was really pushing for this idea that we need more optimistic science fiction several years ago. Yeah, he edited that, an anthology called Hieroglyph that you and I are both in, um, right. which is full of stories that were intense intentionally optimistic. My question is, those stories didn't feel like hope punk to me. Like it felt like optimism was something different. In terms of like just different states of mind, I think hope and optimism are different because optimism kind of implies that things are going to get better. And if you're an optimist, you believe that things will get better, that it's the like future inevitable. will be better, or that, you know, you believe that there is a better future out there that we can get to. Again, it's that notion of progress. It's that notion of, you know, we're going to invent better technology. We're going to have better science. We're going to learn better. Our society is going to advance and things are going to be in some way happier in the future. Whereas hope, I don't think there's any necessarily conviction that things are going to get better. It's more just that you hope they'll get better. You think that they might get better. You think that we can try to make them better. You know, hope is in some sense the opposite of despair. So it's the idea that there is a point to continuing to try to make things better and that we can 
keep working at it and that, that there's a possibility of, of doing something better. But it doesn't feel as certain to me as optimism. And the thing about optimism that I always think about is that it, when you talk about optimism, when you really break it down into thinking about what are people saying when they're being optimistic, what they're really saying is that they believe in the perfectibility of human nature or that human beings can be good and that we are you know, capable of great altruism. And optimism often boils down to having faith in a certain version of human nature. It's like when people say, like, well, I believe that people are fundamentally good. If you believe in, like, the, for example, the Star Trek future or, you know, other kind of like somewhat utopian versions of the future, you know, that's optimistic. And part of why it's optimistic is because people have gotten better and we've learned to use our more advanced science and technology in ways that are less destructive and we've learned to cooperate more and we've become more socialist or more altruistic in various ways. More egalitarian. More egalitarian, yeah. And so to some extent, it's hard to separate optimism from like a belief about human nature, whereas I think you can be hopeful and still have a fairly dim view of human nature. Hmm. You can believe that people are often selfish and terrible and awful, and that even people that we admire have a dark side and are capable of really, really shitty behavior, but we still think that there are ways to get to a better future. It's still or worth it. It's still worth fighting. So the way that you're describing it really was making me think that hope is more active, that mm-hmm. there's something about it that's like a call to action. Whereas yeah. you could be an optimist and be basically like almost indifferent to engaging with any kind of struggle. Like you'd be like, well, it's all going to turn out fine. Yeah. Um, you know, I believe that humans are basically good, so I don't need to join in the fight because inevitably it will all turn out. As you said, in Star Trek, there's this kind of inevitability to the timeline, like, well, we'll have a dark time, but then we will all collectively embrace our inner egalitarian. And, you know, occasionally there'll be a bad guy, but usually the bad guys are like some genetically engineered, you know, mutant version of humans, not one of us. And in optimism, often the inevitability of things becoming better does come out of we're going to make scientific and technological advances, and those by their very nature will make everything better. I have a perfect clip that illustrates what I'm saying about hope, which comes from the most recent episode of Doctor Who. It's not really spoilery, but it's an amazing little snippet from a speech that Jodie Whittaker's 13th Doctor gives, and let's listen to that. No matter how many times you try, no matter how long you wait, I will always be in your way, backed up by the best of humanity. So she gives so many inspirational I speeches. Her. No, I love, I love, I she actually and like, love that about when her. When you watch that scene, it's just so stirring and beautiful. And like, what's great about that clip is that she's not saying, we're going to defeat you to the monster of the week, which I won't say what monster it is because that's a spoiler. This was from the New Year's Day episode that just aired like the other day. Uh, She's not saying we're going to defeat you once and for all. She's saying you're going to keep coming back and we're going to keep fighting you and I'll always be here and I won't be alone. I'll be with the best of humanity will be behind me. There's no triumph. There's no final victory. There's just I'm going to always be here. Whenever you try to do something bad, I'm going to be here to stop you. Yeah, so it's kind of in defiance against that, what was it called? The bright? Noble bright. Yeah, it's a de- it's defiance <laughs> against noble bright, which to me sounds oh, like a toothpaste brand or something like that. Noble bright toothpaste. <laughs> yeah. You, you can, <laughs> gets your enamel enamelier. I don't it, know. It deposes evil wizards that, <laughs> you know, operate through surveillance. Yeah, I like that idea that it's, you know, really, I mean, in a sense, I guess noble bright goes with optimism in a way. Yeah, in a weird way. Yeah, it does. It's all about how, like, well, inevitably somebody nice will come along because we're basically nice. And so then yeah. 
it'll be fine because, you know, we'll have a good king um, or a good leader. It'll be great. Like, even though, for example, Wakanda from Black Panther is ruled by a noble family that inherits power, which I think most egalitarians are not into, but it's fine because... Black Panther is a good guy. Right. And, and we, we, so we don't have to worry that Wakanda is a monarchy and has never had open elections because <laughs> because luckily the king is a nice guy. They have trial by combat. They've got it covered. Right. That's yeah, what anybody they have can challenge of the king. Anybody yeah. can challenge the king. It's all good. Yeah. And we, we see in Black Panther what it would look like if they had a bad king, like or a quote unquote bad king, which obviously that's up for debate. The thing about all of this is that hope is an emotion. It's a state of mind. It's yeah. not a trope in itself. There are tropes associated with it, but mm-hmm. it is, it's a state of mind and it's something that's often hard. Like I feel like despair is easy. Like it's easy to fall into despair. It doesn't take any work to, to just, you literally fall into despair. You just fall over. Whereas hope requires a certain effort, a certain kind of exercise of will almost to say, no, I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna believe in this. And I, I think to write a hopeful story in 2019, requires a certain amount of, unless it's just pure escapism, which we can talk about in a minute, it requires a certain amount of like really digging down and thinking about like what cause is there for hope in a world of where terrible things happen. And I think that that's an exercise that's actually worth doing. Yeah, I always think about that scene in the first Matrix movie where Trinity is, it's the very first scene, like she's basically racing away from the bad guys and, you know, she has superpowers because she's, you know, in the Matrix. (laughs) And she flies through a window and she's kind of crunched on the floor and the bad guys are coming and she says to herself, get up, Trinity, get up. (sighs) And it's, you know, it's a little moment, but I feel like that's the hope punk moment. It's like how you you, you don't just get up, right? You actually have to talk yourself into it because it's like you've just gone through a bunch of windows. The bad guys are gaining on you. Like you're crunched on the floor. You feel like garbage. And it's like, but no, get up. Keep getting up. What are the works of science fiction and fantasy that are giving you hope right now? Right this second. Right this second, early 2019. <laughs> what's what's making you feel hope? Well, I mentioned She-Ra earlier when I was saying that I'd yeah. like to have more sparkly things. Yeah, um, and you know, She-Ra, it's right there in the theme song, this idea that we are going to keep fighting and we're going to do it and we're our friends are with us. In fact, we have a clip. Let's listen. We're right beside you, ready to fight. I love that theme song because it's so non-ironic yeah. and, and yet really sweet. You want to pump your fist. You're like, yeah. And I do think it's a hopeful man. show for the, again, for the reasons that I mentioned, that there is a genuinely dark force that is this kind of authoritarian, Hordak. the horde. Um, yeah. It's this authoritarian dictatorship aided by magic, but also aided by an actual military that kills mm-hmm. people. And She-Ra is the goddess incarnation of a regular foot soldier who has defected from the Horde and is trying to raise basically a counter army of princesses, which is also delight. I love the idea that it's like a team of princesses that are fighting. So Plus Bo. Plus Bo, who is ambiguously sexual, I would say. He's, he's kind of <laughs> gay. He's kind of just bi. I don't know. He ha- He's in love with a pirate guy. We and haven't watched the rest of the season yet, so we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, don't tell us. Um, Steven Universe, and we're going to have an episode about Steven Universe later this season, so yeah. we can talk more about that later. But ah. similar to She-Ra, um, it has the kind of candy-colored world. There's a lot of darkness, but also there's always hope. One of the other things that always gives me hope are basically 
I would just say the novels of Octavia Butler because she's often returns to the theme of the difficulty of hope in her books because there's characters who are struggling with both fantastical authoritarians, you know, aliens, or they're struggling with, you know, mutants who can control their minds in some cases. In other cases, they're struggling with things like slavery. One of her most famous novels, Kindred, is about a black woman in the 1970s who travels back through time to the slave era, and she realizes that she's there because she has to rescue, and this is not really a spoiler, this is the setup of the novel, she realizes that she has to rescue her ancestor who's in danger of dying, and of course if he dies then she won't exist, and he's a white guy. Mm-hmm. And so that is the kind of complexity of hope that I love, is where she's having to help this guy who's a terrible person and is enslaving her ancestors, but at the same time she's connected to him. And that's the thing that Octavia Butler comes back to again and again is that there are these connections between us that are both oppressive and dark, but also are the pathway toward hope and toward healing. And so it just depends on how you manage that connection, if you can. And, you know, things get bloody, things get really dark in her work, but there's always some kind of incredible compromise that mm. that we see. And it's not, it, nothing comes out perfect, but, but people in the end don't die in huge numbers. So that to me is, (laughs) I feel like that is a win. And the other thing that made me really happy recently, uh, and we recommended this on our Patreon, is the movie Into the Spider-Verse. I mean, partly it's because it, again, it kind of fits into my wish for things that are a little more sparkly and colorful. Mm -hmm. Um, It's animated and the animation style was developed just for this film. It's, It's very abstract and sequential arty. But also, I love the message of the film, which is that, you know, these five different spider people from different universes wind up getting together through, you know, technology, through whatever hand wavium <laughs> type yeah, thing that's happening. like a thing. There's, there's, a machine. A, there's a machine. Kingpin has a thing. <laughs> the whole story of Spider-Man, which is usually a story about having great power and great responsibility and having to like break up with your girlfriend and just be alone. That's not in this movie. In fact, Miles Morales, who's the new Spider-Man, his origin story is an origin of friendship and alliances with Spidey people who are really different. One of them is a spider who has pig powers. That's yeah, spider pig, or spider, no, not spider, no, spider ham. ham. Peter Porker, spider ham. So he's a spider that was bitten by a radioactive pig. Yeah. And so he has the powers of a pig. You know, there's also Spider Gwen. Yeah. Um, there's also Noir Spider-Man, who's, you know, so awesome. black and white. He's sort of like the masculinity of old, kind uh-huh. of. And then there's the far future Mira Spider Girl who has a spider robot. She's like the anime Spider Girl. She's yeah. the anime Spider Girl, which my 11 year old niece really liked because she's super into anime. And she was like, "Yay, there's an anime spider!" Um, <laughs> that was that like literally made her evening. My point is that these are stories about alliances, and I take so much hope from. Stories about unlikely friendships and alliances. I mean, that's why I'm a sucker for The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, mm-hmm. Not not so crazy about the other two movies in that trilogy, but I love the characters coming together and having to overcome their distrust, uh, which is its own kind of work. You know, it's like what we were talking about with Hope 
it takes work. And, yeah. you know, maintaining those alliances takes work. Okay, so I talked for a really long time. <laughs> what is giving you hope? Recently, I was recovering from minor surgery, and I watched, like, a whole season and a half of The Flash, the CW show, which oh, I've yeah, never... Oh, yeah, you told me you were doing that, and I was, I was a little dubious. Okay, no, so how, that I mean, turned I, out well, apparently. I've watched some of the other shows in that sort of universe, like Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow, and Flash is super fun. It's very hopeful. It's very much like, again, a team of heroes, a team of friends who all work together and are nice to each other and support each other. And occasionally really dark, terrible things happen, but they just keep pulling together and working it out. And really the relationships between the characters are what make that show so beautiful. Like, I feel like there's just like camaraderie and sweetness and kindness. And like, actually, Legends of Tomorrow, which I'm totally up to date on, so I haven't been binging that but it's legends of tomorrow is so fun and so cheerful and like a lot of those superhero shows on the cw are just very uplifting and speaking of the cw they did a reboot of charmed oh uh, yes which you know we watched at least the first three or four episodes of so far and love it again it's got camaraderie it's got these three sisters kind of teaming up to fight demons but also it's kind of weirdly political like one of the characters is a women's studies professor and like in the first episode they kill a demon that's like a sexual harasser demon basically yeah i was like so excited about that he's a sexual harasser scientist who's harassing women in his lab and i was like wow this is like the real life that's (laughs) unfolding around me every day yeah also the sisters in charmed in the original tv show it's three white ladies Mm -hmm. and now two of them are latina and one is black and Mm -hmm. it's really nice and that actually it isn't just like they're paying lip service like they kind of deal with that like they talk about their identities actually matter to their characters yeah and it's just it's super uplifting at least what I've seen so far and it's just super fun and it feels political in a way that's very kind of like happy and upbeat and Supergirl is still making me really happy and you you are such a sucker for Supergirl I love Supergirl oh my god that show (laughs) especially this season because Supergirl has been doing a whole storyline that's basically about the alt-right and there's like, instead of having like an alien villain who's come to Earth to kill everybody, the baddie in this season is basically this movement of humans who are xenophobic against aliens like Supergirl, and they want to kill all the aliens. And a lot of it directly parallels to the the rhetoric and tactics and attitudes of the alt-right and kind of the new kind of xenophobic right. Directly commenting on that, and it actually wrestles a lot with like the issue of like whether you engage with them, whether you try to treat them as legitimate and argue with them, or whether you ignore them, and like how do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. And it's actually really interesting. It's it's something that I've been really enjoying, and uh, a novel that has characters who work together who are like super nice and awesome is The Wrong Stars by Tim Pratt, which I loved recently. Yeah, that's such a that's, great book. It's such a fun space opera book. You know, and one of the things that actually was giving me a lot of hope and excitement and happy feelings about our possible future the other day was a short story called How Robot and Crow Saved East Lewis, which was by an author named... Hmm. Oh, Annalie knew it. That's right. Yeah. Wow, how did that, that story was come like about? a really great intro, Charlie. Thanks. It reminded me of like when my parents at Hanukkah would be like, who got you some presents? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so a short story I wrote came out in Slate a few days ago. I'd be so happy. And and it's actually dealing with a lot of the hope punk themes that we've been talking about, which I wasn't I didn't set out to do that. I did want to write a hopeful story and it's about a robot who is 
designed by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, to do health surveillance in St. Louis. And so it's kind of going around and trying to make sure that there's no plague outbreaks basically happening. This is in the future when like flu outbreaks are really deadly and they're happening all the time. Well, but then the CDC loses its funding. So the robot is kind of cut loose and it has to figure out what it's going to do. And among many things that it does is it decides to learn crow language and hang out with crows. And this leads to it ultimately discovering another plague outbreak. And by teaming up with a teenage girl who's really obsessed with biology, Robot and the Crow managed to have an adventure, uh, which does have a happy ending. I'm not going to spoil it for you too much. But again, for me, the fun and the hope in this story comes from the alliance between really unlikely characters, a robot, a crow, and a human, how they cope with a world where lack of government funding for healthcare and public health is putting huge numbers of people at risk of mass death. So it's not a happy world. <laughs> um, and it's not good that the government has done this. One of the things that was really cool is that Slate got a AI programmer named Janelle Shane to write a response. And she talks about all the ways in which the robot character in the in the story is not very realistic. <laughs> um, and then that, but that's really interesting because what she calls attention to in the story are all of the ways in which I'm having kind of a speculative fantasy about what it would be like to actually have a really good AI, like an AI that was a hopeful AI instead of a depressing authoritarian AI, like the sort of algorithms on Facebook or something. It's like the opposite of the algorithms on Facebook. How do you build that? And so that's sort of the fantasy of the story is how would you have a hopeful approach to AI and to fighting for the future of humanity? So that story is free on Slate if you want to yeah, check it out. Thanks it for asking so about it, happy. Charlie. No, I'm, I've been like talking about it nonstop since I read it. And it, it definitely, like I said on Twitter, it feels like kind of an anti-Wally story because, you know, in the movie Wally, the robot's left alone and humans have kind of abandoned it. And it's just kind of like sad and the human race is kind of pointless and not worth saving almost. And in this, it feels like the human race is worth saving and the robot isn't alone, even no. though it's been abandoned. It's in the Wally tradition because, of course, Wally becomes friends with a cockroach um, yeah. in that movie. But where's the cockroach for the rest of the film? The I know. Doesn't they don't actually to, like, become buddies. They don't whereas, team up. Yeah. Robot and the crow in the story really do team up. And Robot kind of deciphers crow language, yeah. which we all want to do. <laughs> Well, we, at least some of us do. I love crows. So I was like, basically, I spend all day long staring at crows wishing I could talk to them. Huh. Um, and I just assume that they're all making fun of me, which is probably true. So my final thought, I guess, for this episode is that I always say that writing a dystopia is a hopeful act because it's about imagining how we could survive a dystopia. And ditto for like apocalypses and ditto for like a lot of other dark subject matter. And I think that actually the darker the subject matter, the more it matters that you have hope in there. Um, and what's your final thought? I feel a little bit more ambivalently about writing dystopias. I don't think that is always a hopeful act. I think it's sometimes writers, including myself, just want to hurt you when they <laughs> write things. Um, I've definitely, especially earlier in my career, I wrote things that I wanted readers to feel pain and I didn't want them to have hope. I wanted them to just know I was really upset. <laughs> and there's a lot of stories that I still really love that are like that. I do think that, however, there is a way to write a dark story that is hopeful. And I think there's a way of having a story that looks pretty and sparkly 
and that celebrates a kind of softer approach. I hate to use the word softer, but that celebrates a more friendship-based, egalitarian approach to fixing problems. I think there's ways of making that really tough and really realistic, you know, that just because something looks sparkly doesn't mean it has to be fakery or that it's covering up some essential, you know, problem. And I think that's what's great about things like Steven Universe and She-Ra is that they give us a lesson in having something that seems cute and happy, but also really asks hard questions and, and really punches you in the chest with sadness sometimes and, and yeah. darkness. And so really, this is just an invitation for people to be writing and reading more sparkly things that are hopeful or dark things that are that help us on that difficult journey to a better world. Now for a segment that we call What I'm Obsessed With. (laughs) Annalie, what are you obsessed with this week? Okay, I just watched this movie from 2007 called Rise, colon, Blood Hunter. So you know it's going to be good immediately because it has a colon in the title. (laughs) It isn't just Rise, Blood Hunter. It's Rise, colon, Blood Hunter, which I guess means it's like an order, like rise up or something. I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) That would be Rise, comma, Blood Hunter. Right. I don't know what this is. It's starring Lucy Liu as a woman who works at LA Weekly back when LA Weekly was an alternative uh, oh, man, publication. Oh, so sad. Yeah, and she is doing investigative work on some kind of death metal thing, <laughs> but it's really vampires. We don't really understand. Somehow Michael Chiklis is also involved. He's a cop who's somehow investigating the same thing. It's basically Lucy Liu, of course, gets too deep into it. She's turned into a vampire. And then there's like long, gratuitous vampire blood sex threesome scenes. And Wait, why is that gratuitous? That sounds very important to the story. It's gratuitous. Trust me. I watched the unrated version. So, and it's like, it's a lot. And it's like, it's gloriously bad, but it is also a little squicky. Like, I trigger warning for sure if you're going to check this movie out. It also has a cameo from Marilyn Manson randomly. It has Topher from Dollhouse in it. It's like everyone is in this freaking movie. Lucy Liu is the freaking star and utters the immortal line, you're the only man who tried to put my pants back on me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like that's the kind of movie it is. You can tell that Lucy Liu is like literally dialing it in. She's like, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, (laughs) The director, uh, Sebastian Gutierrez is famous for making one of the worst movies in the world called Gothica. Oh, um, Gothica. Yeah, which was a, a great... Halle Berry is in that yeah. being tormented. Um, this is another kind of gothic torment movie. <sighs> it pretty much makes no sense. Like, basically, it's just Lucy Liu doing revenge killings. There's a lot of random flashbacks that you would never know were flashbacks, except that Lucy Liu has long hair in the past and short hair in the present. So you can keep it straight if you need to. There's also like random lesbian scenes. We don't know why. There's, I'd say, just a lot of revenge killing and also fragile vampires. Like for some reason, the vampires can't die, but it's easy to like kick them and knock them out, which allows them to have lots of scenes of unconscious Lucy Liu being tormented. Oh, no. I know. That was one of the things I was like, I don't know. but That doesn't um, sound good. 
Overall, it meets the criteria of a so bad it's good movie on almost every axis, like having really high-powered actors in this incredibly garbage plot. It's incoherent. It has random sex and nudity for no reason. Lots of people being hung from the ceiling for no reason. Characters who are introduced and disappear. We don't know why they're there. It's like, oh, it's some old important vampire guy. Okay, forget about him. We only needed him for the scene with the hanging upside down naked girl. Um, <laughs> there's Oh, and crossbows. Lucy Liu's weapon is a crossbow, which she only is. has five arrows, but somehow they last for the whole movie until the very end. <laughs> but does this movie <laughs> She have... retrieves them, I guess. I guess. So does this movie have municipal Darwinism, though? <laughs> Not as good as Mortal Engines, which has municipal Darwinism, um, but it is set in L.A., so there's a certain amount of, like, sort of urban I feel like concern. being in L.A. automatically makes it about municipal Darwinism. Yeah, I feel like I, there's, like, sort of urban red alert. And it is actually shot in L.A. Like, you will recognize L.A. in it. I was just blown away. I can't believe this movie exists and that we don't know more Yay. about it. Um, so I am obsessed with that movie, Rise, colon, Blood Hunter. My new catchphrase is municipal Darwinism from the Mortal Engines movie it, because it's just, you can use it in so many circumstances. It's really true. I mean, we're living through municipal Darwinism. So, okay. We are, what actually. are you, other than municipal Darwinism, what are you obsessed with? So, my current obsession is a novel that I'm just finishing up reading called The Gilded Wolves by Roshana Chokshi. And it takes place in Paris in 1889. And it's about this group of like thieves who are stealing magical objects from like the aristocrats of like Paris's magical society and they're led by this guy named Severin who is like a disgraced aristocrat who runs a fabulous hotel and one of the thieves is this girl from India who is like a cabaret performer but she performs in a mask so nobody knows who she really is and she's also a pastry chef and and a thief and a thief I love her yeah no oh my god it's this novel is just it's nonstop fun every time you think that Roshana talks she can't come up with like more wild and glamorous and beautiful stuff she just comes up with like 20 more things and it's just <laughs> it's just nonstop fun and it's just super exciting and I don't want is it to it end it is actually quite hopeful I mean I haven't got to the end of the book yet but I'm close to the end now it's got like this beautiful sort of escapist but it's also about this group of friends who are all there for each other and they're all kind of like supporting each other it's a YA book I think it's right on the edge like anybody could read it yeah and like it's YA just, for all ages yeah and it's just it's so much fun and the world is so fascinating and the all of the magical stuff is really interesting because there's like lots of layers to that as well and it kind of gets into all this weird theological territory and there's just wow. and it's got this undercurrent going through it about like colonialism and about like post-colonization and a lot of the characters are people of color who are dealing with the kind of fallout of colonialism in one way or another and that's kind of a running theme and it sounds like they're stealing magical artifacts back yeah that kind have been of maybe taken from them which is another kind of that, yeah that's a bit of in my mind, a kind of a post-colonial theme. Not that there's magic, but like that during colonialism, many sacred artifacts were taken from colonized peoples and like put into museums. There is a little bit of that. It's also got like a lot of like magical Ocean's Eleven kind of stuff where it's like, we're going to break into the magic vault and you're going to disguise yourself as like a gardener and you're going to descend from the ceiling and you're going to like do a ballet dance. And then it's just, it's got everything. Also, like, I just want to return to the important thing of Pastry chef, cabaret, performer, magic stealer. Yeah. That's, wow. Yeah, and it's, it's it's just, the whole novel is just like nonstop fun and like zaniness. And there's like, I don't know, I love it so much. All right, cool. 
Thanks for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Please follow us on Twitter at OOACpod, and you can find this podcast wherever you can find any podcast, like at Apple Podcasts, Libsign, anywhere. Please subscribe to us. Please leave a review if you like us. Also, we have a Patreon. Woohoo! It's patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. If you can give us like a dollar or a galactic unit or a Zarb coin or a blarb Or a million dollars. Or, you know, possibly like our own planet, you know, <laughs> that would be really awesome. I mean, or a Kuiper belt object. If you give us our own planet, please give us a way to get there because like there's no yeah. point in owning a planet that we can't ever actually reach. Like I did that once. It wasn't really... That yeah. great. I was like, I could point up and be like, that right there, that's my planet. Yeah, and, and you like, can't even be sure really like who's who's already there. Yeah, yes. like it's hard to, you know, it's hard to stake your claim. So yeah, give us a way to get to our planet if you're giving us a planet. And thanks to Veronica Simonetti for being our engineer and just at generally- At Women's Audio Mission. At Women's Audio Mission for being our engineer and just generally being the greatest. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the music and thanks to you for listening. Bye now. Bye.